0: Utah Public Radio would like to thank this year's sponsors of our 2014 legislative coverage, AARP Utah and Utah State University Center for Women and Gender. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Well, the 2014 Utah legislature closed last night. Medicaid expansion, air quality, education, the budget. These are just some of the topics we're going to talk about today on Access Utah. Our guests include Governor Gary Herbert, House Speaker Rebecca Lockhart, House Minority Assistant Whip Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Senate Majority Assistant Whip Pete Knudsen, and Senate Minority Leader Gene Davis. We want to know what you think as well. What happened to the bills you were following? Are you pleased your chance to talk to state leaders about the important issues of the day? Here's how you can reach us during the hour. You can direct your questions or comments to upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page for the picture of the Utah State Capitol. And you can call 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. We begin with my conversation from yesterday evening with Governor Gary Herbert, who was not able to join us this morning. Uh, Here's that conversation. Uh, I want to start with uh, Medicaid expansion, Governor. There's uh, you have a proposal, of course, on the table. Uh, a couple in the legislature, I believe one has passed out of the Senate, and uh, looks like it's not going to pass the House. Um, what are you? It, it, let, let's say nothing passes out of the legislature. Uh, what are you going to do? What's what's your next step?
1: Well, my first request to the legislature was to not tie my hands. And so that's not happening. My hands aren't being tied. And uh, the Senate really has embraced, in fact, my proposal, so they're supportive. Uh, The Speaker of the House of Representatives has said, you know, I don't need permission. I can go back and negotiate the best deal I can uh, with, uh, with the Obama administration. So she's at least acknowledged that. They've not let the Senate bill come up for a vote. Uh, but I do believe that there's many members of the body in the House of Representatives that would support my proposal on a block grant approach as an alternative to Medicaid expansion. And so I I feel good about where I'm at, frankly, and I think that we can go back, and I'm working with a number of other governors I've already talked to. We have our team leaving. um, We'll be there Monday in Washington, D.C., to start moving ahead with the negotiations and see if we can't get uh, the appropriate agreements on a healthy Utah plan. Uh, I think, one, we're going to, uh, with the Health Utah Plan, we can actually be more effective in helping people. I think we'll have a better program than the typical Medicaid expansion, and it respects the taxpayers' dollars. And uh, I think that all around, on, on, on many levels, this is going to be a better alternative to just full-blown Medicaid expansion. Uh,
0: what would you like to see? The best-case scenario, how many people uh, additionally covered, how much money?
1: The, 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 just, so, just to recap, and I know you probably know this, Tom, but we send back, as, a, as Utah taxpayers, under the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, about $680 million. They will give back to us, as per the, uh, the, the law, $258 million of that to put into Medicaid expansion, so-called. I'm just saying, let's take the $258 million and rather than put it into Medicaid expansion, put it into our own program called Healthy Utah, similar to what they do in Indiana, which they have a healthy Indiana plan, similar to what they're doing in Arkansas, where the money's all being put into insurance programs, similar to what Tennessee wants to do and and other states that I'm working with. So the intent is to take the money and still serve the same group of people. That's people that go up to 133% of poverty, and in Utah, that's about 111,000 people. And uh, so it's it's kind of the same group, but just a different way to serve them. Uh, We're going to have more skin in the game from the recipient. They're going to pay some of the premium, uh, those that can afford it, uh, at least 2% of their income, those above 100% of poverty. There will be co-payments. There's going to be better service, better doctors. I think we'll have a better outcome all around and get better bang for the taxpayers' dollars in serving those 111,000 people than we would with just a typical Medicaid program.
0: Talk me through the process here, if you would, Governor, Uh, so you go negotiate uh, the best deal you can with the uh, Obama administration, you come back, and then uh, that would need to be approved by a special session of the legislature?
1: Yes, uh, I can go negotiate the agreements on this. I I don't think I need any permission, really, from the legislature. Where the legislature does get involved, of course, I want to have their support and their buy-in. I want to have a consensus, not some kind of confrontation. But where they do have um, a role to play is when we put $258 million into the budget, uh, under our, our our current statutes, they have the ability to, to take a look at that before they accept the money. So they could, I guess, say, well, we don't like the program and we're not going to take the money and stop that from happening. But that would be an interesting discussion, certainly, with the public at large, saying, what? You're not taking our money back? Uh, and so. That will be the process. I first need to go. It's going to take probably two to four months, I think, to get this all agreed to, and, and it literally will be a kind of an agreement and a contract with the Department of Health. Then with that done, bring it back. We would vet it with the legislature, or the leadership, uh, individual legislators, then call a special session to actually have a mechanism to accept the money and put it into the budget.
0: Looking at the politics of this, uh, of course you're aware of this, um, some Republicans, especially, don't want to have anything to do with Obamacare and don't want to take federal money, even, even if it were in the, in the block grant uh, form. Do you think you can overcome those objections?
1: Well, I think the more people think about it, the more common sense prevails. Uh, it's like if I gave you 50 bucks and you say, well, you've overpaid me, and uh, I'll give you $20 back, and I say, no, oh, no, nah, nah, oh, you just keep it. Um, you know, that's part of what we're doing. This is not money that we're borrowing from China. This does not help balance the, the federal budget uh, and their deficit. This is money that we're being collected right now today from our companies here in Utah, our, our medical device companies, our Merit Medicals, our Edward Life Sciences, our Presidiouses. It's from our suntanning tax uh, that comes from uh, uh, sun suntanning uh, beds, the people utilize, and others, we send $680 million. And for us to not take part of that back that's being given to us, which will be spent other ways in other places, seems to be a little bit unwise. So yeah, we have going to have to have that discussion, that debate. And the question ultimately is going to be, would you rather have the federal government spend the $280 million, or would you rather have Utah spend the money? Mm. To me, that's a no-brainer. Mm. We will spend it more efficiently and more effectively and get better outcomes. I would just assume Utah spend more of the money. I'd just assume we didn't send money back to Washington, D.C. in the first place, other than for some limited needs like public safety and national defense and some issues like that. But I'd just assume have it stay here at home. But when they do take it, I just assume they give it back to us in a block grant form because we can spend it much better and get a better outcome and the taxpayers are better served. In fact, we could probably, if we do that, have some tax cuts. So it's better than just leaving it out there and having the federal government spend it inappropriately.
0: Hmm. One of the objections I I heard or concerns, this is better better, uh, said, uh, was expressed on this program a couple of weeks ago by Representative Ed Redd from uh, up here in Logan. Uh, he said he. Uh, while he is sympathetic, he's concerned with setting up a, a program at a certain level, and then he's concerned we may not be able to sustain that down the road if we have a, a downturn in the economy, for example.
1: Well, uh, two things come to mind. One, that's why it's a pilot program. It's a three-year pilot program. We're going to ask the Department of Health here in our own state to monitor it, to see what the results are with individuals and families. Are we really helping people or not? And uh, secondly, to monitor the federal government. Are they willing and able to keep their commitments, which is what you just talked about? And three, how does it impact our own state budget? So it's a pilot program that we'll be able to take a look at after three years of data collection and say, well, here's where it's working well, here's where it's not, here's what improvements need to be made, here's where we have some problems, we should go for it, or we should get out. But as Representative Redd, as a medical doctor, would understand, just because you may not be able to service people in three years and help people as a doctor doesn't mean you don't help people today that you're capable of doing. I think that would be, again, foolish. I can help people today. It may be that I can't help them in three years because of circumstances, whatever they end up being. But that doesn't mean, well, because I can't help you in three years, I won't help you today. That seems to be a little bit wrong headed. So that's why it's a pilot program. That's why we're going to do thorough analysis on our budget, the federal government's commitment, and making sure that we're really helping people. And, um, and we'll see where, where it goes from there. But I'm very confident, just like we've had Medicaid in place since uh, the late 60s, by the way, the federal government has not defaulted on any of their portion of the payment, which has been a 70-30 split for that many years. Uh, maybe that's a worry out there and certainly a concern that they're not spending their money rationally in Washington. But that shouldn't stop us in this particular instance of spending our own money and saying, look, it's our money. Let us spend it, because we'll spend it much better than you. And if we can't do it in three years, we'll have to pull the plug on it. That's just the reality. That's a tough decision that politicians sometimes have to make. We did it during the recession. We had to cut a billion dollars out of our budget uh, during the Great Recession, and we did it. We made the tough decisions. You had to live within your means. You do what you can, but you do what you can.
0: Hmm. We're talking with uh, Governor Gary Herbert uh... Utah governor on the program today on the occasion of the uh, wrapping up of the 2014 legislative session I want to move to uh, air quality governor uh, a lot of bills introduced uh, you know a lot of interest at the beginning of the legislative session this winter has uh, you know thankfully been a little better in terms of the weather uh, with air quality um, what are you, what are you seeing coming out of the legislature are you satisfied with that what what are you what are the principles you're looking at going forward on this
1: Well, you said it correctly, Tom, that the biggest single factor about air quality is, you know, our weather. And uh, if we have inversions, we have a problem. If we don't have inversions, it's a beautiful day outside. Uh, So we'll have less inversions this year than we had last year, and the the volume of pollutants uh, in the air during those inversions will be less, too. Some think maybe by half. Uh, we are doing everything we can to clean up the air. I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate issue. It's not only just a health care issue, but it is envir- economic development. People are going to be reluctant to come here over time if we don't have a, a good environment, a good clean air, and, and those things that go along with quality of life. So it's an issue that's, I think, resonating with the legislature more than ever before. That being said, uh, a lot of the stuff we're doing to clean up the air is just stuff we're doing. I don't need legislative approval or buy-in or bills being passed uh, stopping wood burning, uh, whether it be in fireplaces or stoves, is something we're going to do with the, through the Division of Environmental Quality. Uh, we are going to move towards Tier 3 fuels, cleaner fuels, and automobiles as sick, as quickly as we can. Again, tailpipes is a big part of our and emissions and pollutants during uh, inversion, so that's a big step in the right direction. We're already engaged with industry as far as making sure they have best available technology so that their pollution levels are going down and will, in fact, continue to go down over time. We want to make sure that we meet the requirements of the Clean Air Act in 2019. Now that they're tightening that down, it used to be PM10 that we had to reduce particulates, now it's PM2.5 much more uh, stringent, much more difficult to meet those. But we are on a glide path to reach the, those uh, uh, requirements under the Clean Air Act. Uh, areas where we could do better, I, I've asked for uh, money for replacement of our school buses. Our buses, some of them are 30 years old. And we can improve the uh, environment, at least the tailpipe emissions by new buses, by about 90% of what they're doing now. So it's a, a big step in the right direction. Uh, that has not been funded as of yet. Maybe that will happen before the session is over today. There's another bill that gives us more flexibility to, to have the state say where we need it to be more difficult, more uh, more tough, and have stricter standards than what is required under the Clean Air Act. And, I, again, I, I don't like the one-size-fits-all that comes out of Washington. This is an example of maybe we need to be a little more strict in the federal requirements to, uni- to address our unique situation here. That being said, I think we're doing some good things uh, for air quality. We're going to do some even greater things. What we don't get done in this legislative session, we'll come back and tackle in the next legislative session.
0: We'll talk about uh, the count my votes, uh, the the compromise that was forged, uh, Senator Bramble's uh, Senate Bill 54, which you have signed, I believe, which uh, to, to review uh, briefly, of course, you know this governor, it preserves convention Cox's convention system, adds a path to primary by signatures, and Mad Dates open primaries. So what do you think this is going? What effect do you think this is going to have?
1: Well, I I think it's a compromise. You know, probably both sides of the issue are not too happy, but both of them had issues going forward. Uh, some of it's lit- litigation issues. Some of it was just uh, whether the public supported your point of view or that point of view. And I was concerned about the overreach of the legislature and not only telling pop, uh, parties what to do and how to do it. I think that's a, a significant issue. But I was also concerned about uh, the perception of the legislature gaming the system and taking away the voice of the people through their initiative petition process by presupposing what the outcome is going to do and then countermanding uh, uh, you know, that outcome. So I encouraged them to find a compromise where they could come together, and by golly, they did. I've heard the arguments in detail here. I was with the Republican Central Committee here just a couple of weeks ago and heard Representative Dan McKay and Senator Kurt Bramble argue why they thought this was a good thing. And they've got persuasive arguments about this being a good compromise. And, and, um, you know, it's not black and white. uh, You know, I can argue both sides. But I think this compromise is a good place to be and it does preserve the convention caucus system, which I'm a big fan of and a big supporter of. It does provide an alternative uh, route for those who want to go that extra effort. Uh, you know, for me, it's uh, that's 28,000 signatures I've got to go gather. Uh, for me, it's actually easier, I think, to go through the caucus convention system. But for those who don't like that and want to try another way, they can get on the ballot too. So it is, in the true sense of the word, a compromise. Uh, it's not perfect. But that's why I signed it, and uh, I think they dealt in good faith. I think they came up with a pretty good compromise.
0: Do you think this was at heart about ideology, people's fears of uh, you know uh, people getting nominated who are perhaps not representative of the entire party?
1: That was part of the argument for some. I don't know if it's necessarily a legitimate argument. I think there's some legitimacy to it in different areas, and you can always have this anecdotal story that proves the point. But it doesn't mean that's generally how it is. You know, we've had, uh, through this caucus system, we've had some pretty moderate people get elected as governor. You know, Mike Levitt, uh, uh, and Olin Walker, uh, John Huntsman, Jr., you know, uh, pretty moderate people. And the, the, the finalists, I mean, Nolan Karras, a real moderate, good Republican, uh, was in the finals against uh, John Huntsman when he ran for uh, governor. So the caucus convention system has not produced these wide-eyed, you know, radical right-wingers. At least for governor, and um, so I, again, there may be some legitimacy. I've always said that uh, this is about participation. I mean, the debate should be about getting more people involved, and and I think the co- convention caucus system works really well if people show up. Yeah. If you don't show up, if there's only five of you that show up in the, in the in the living room, you know, it could be that there there are four radicals there. Uh, it could be a radical left or radical right. If you get fifty people to show up, chances are you're going to find. An election where you have kind of mainstream Republican Democrats that really do represent the neighborhoods, and then you've got a, a good delegate base that will make the right decisions. And, and you know, I believe in representative form of government, and this is just the ultimate grassroots representative form of government. Again, a general population election for a, a primary. Uh, you know, it has its own flaws in it. And, and again, I, I can speak as somebody that probably doesn't matter to me for my re-election whether I go general primary or do the convention caucus system. But general primary certainly lends itself to more name recognition and more money, and and that's not altogether good. may not be altogether bad, but it's, it's just different. And um, so, anyway, I think the compromise is good. What it will do long term, we'll have to wait and see.
0: We're two years away. Are, are you in for sure, Governor? For you know,
1: I've got to meet with my family and my wife to make that decision. I think that uh, I've got to decide here sometime this year. Uh, you know, But uh, we've still got elections this year to get yeah. completed, so I, <laughs> I don't want to trip over what's already going on with other elections that are already in, in cycle. But certainly I've got to make a decision by the end of this year so that I can get in cycle for the for the next two years. And, um, and, and so I expect I'll have some kind of family time and with the current First Lady and uh, see if I can get her blessing. And uh, with my family members, it's a, it a really is a, it's a hard, rewarding job, but it's difficult, and it's certainly some sacrifice on the family's part. And I clearly uh, have enjoyed what we're doing. I feel good about the accomplishments. My gosh, we're just such a blessed state for the great results we're getting. And I'm leaning towards that direction, but I've got to make sure that my family's okay before I make any kind of an announcement.
0: Governor Gary Herbert, uh, thanks so much for your time.
1: Hey, thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure to be with
0: you. Appreciate it. Governor Herbert was not able to join us this morning, so that's my conversation with him from last evening. Looking ahead uh, to 2016 already, uh, Speaker Lockhart is rumored to be interested in a a run for governor. I believe Senator Niederhauser has announced that he's in. And uh, the process, at least uh, immediately, gets uh, started next week with caucuses. And there will be change to the system With uh, Senate Bill 54, we're going to be talking uh, more about Medicaid expansion, air quality, education, the budget, other issues. Looking back at the 2014 Utah legislative session later in the program, Speaker of the House, Rebecca Lockhart, House Minority Assistant Whip, uh, Rebecca chavez Hauck, immediately following the break, which is next. We'll have Senate leaders, Senate Minority Leader Gene Davis and Senate Majority Assistant Whip Peter Knudsen. And your call to 1-800-826-1495 is welcome, or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Hi, this is Blair Larson, host of Fresh Folk. On the show this week, I feature the distinctive voice of Will Kimbrough and the debut release from the 20-year-old Parker Millsap. I'll also play tracks from new albums by David Crosby, the John Butler Trio, and Patty Griffin, among other talented artists. Join me this Saturday at 8 p.m. for Fresh Folk on Utah Public Radio.